Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, you are true and good and wise. You are infinite and eternal, unchanging in all that you are. Blessed be your holy, holy, holy name. We confess, Lord, our attempts to draw our souls, joys, and hopes, and blessings from so many things that are in this world. The world and the things that are under the sun are broken and filthy cisterns, we confess. They're unable to give us what they promise, and yet we insist to go back to them over and over again. Father, the world's delights, their promises of delight, they make us more thirsty. They cause our hearts to faint and to be exhausted. They do not sustain us. They have never filled us. They've never made us happy. Lord Jesus, grant us faith this morning that we might turn from the comfort that this world promises and to find the joy and comfort that can only come from Christ. Grant us repentance that we may, that we may see the foolishness of the vain hopes and the vain promises of, these, of this world, and grant us faith that we may cling to Christ, who is our sufficient God, who is our sufficient Savior, who in Him alone can we and our souls be satisfied. We ask, Father, that you'll do this this morning through the blood of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, because we cannot do these things for ourselves. May your preached word go forward this morning. And may you... Our Savior, be set before our eyes this morning that we may with awe and great joy cling to Christ, who is our Savior and our only hope in this world of lies. We ask this in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I found an article this week that had a list of articles in it. And uh, I was reading it. And it's, it's not surprising, the, the, the article and, and the things that were in it um, didn't surprise me. The headlines may not surprise you either. They're from pr some pretty well-known sources. Let me read a few of these. Surgeon General says, this is the, the, uh, one of the, articles, one of the uh, uh, articles that was end, embedded in this, uh, in this article. It says, Surgeon General says there's a loneliness epidemic. This was by the Washington Post. Young people report more loneliness than the elderly. This was by USA Today. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. This was by the Boston Globe. The surprising effects of loneliness on health. An article by the New York Times. Loneliness begets more loneliness by the Atlantic how social isolation is killing us by the New York Times. And then finally, social isolation kills more people than obesity. This is by Slate. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those, they didn't seem surprising. In fact, this is what I came looking for. I came looking to see if, if others had been talking about this in the secular world. It wasn't surprising to me that these, these lists of articles on this one article that I was reading uh, existed there. After I was done reading the article, I looked to the top, and this is what surprised me. These articles were in an article that was written in 2018. <laughs> 2018. 
This is when life was easy, right? This is when this is when we weren't sheltered up in houses for two years. This was before everything happened that was the bombshell on loneliness in our culture and our society. Let me ask you this. Do you think that with all of our technology and with all of our wonderful ability and with all of our intellect and with all of our political power, have we made things better or more connected? I don't think so. In fact, it could be that the harder the world tries, the more pervasive loneliness becomes. Up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been moving along in the last three chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 really have flowed along. Kohelet, um, many of you remember, Kohelet is the, is the Hebrew title for the one in chapter 1, verse 1 that's called the preacher. The Hebrew title is Kohelet. And, and, uh, and he's writing this book, Ecclesiastes, it's, it's likely Solomon, but he refers to himself as the preacher or Kohelet. And, and he's been making an argument that all is vanity. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And then he reflects on the question, in question, chapter 1, verse 3, reflects on the question, well, if all is vanity, 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 all is vanity, since all is vanity, what gain is there for all the toil, all the striving that we put forward every day in our lives? What, what gain is there in that? And he asked that question in chapter 1, verse 3, and then in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he begins laying out an argument of different ways that that is addressed in our culture, the things that are happening under the sun, if you will. In other words, a life lived, as we would call it, maybe a secular worldview, an idea that this is all there is, what's in this world and what's on this planet, and there is no looking to God, what is under the sun. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's been progressing in this argument. I like that kind of understanding. It's kind of like the book of Romans. It's, it's building on itself, and it's, and it's making an argument. However, in chapter 4, what we find is that Kohelet, as he's writing this, he turns to what we know better as, as, as wisdom literature. In fact, chapters 4, for the next several chapters, um, it looks more like the book of Proverbs. There's, there's two or three verses on this theme, and then there's two or three verses on another theme, and then there's another two or three verses, and then it's on another theme. And it, and it seems like there's just this, this, this bag, this, this bag of things that are kind of thrown all together. And so as we, as we look through the next several chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, the challenge will be for us to draw a, a, a central theme, kind of the, to put a thread, to sew a thread through these different things, because there's different pieces everywhere. And that's what I hope have, I've been able to do this morning as we look together at chapter 4. Chapter 4, where there is a common theme of companionship, or specifically the value and the need for companionship. Our world desperately needs to understand this. And Kohelet here is saying, let's look at how the world has dealt with this idea of companionship, friendship, relationships, loneliness. Has the world been able to address these things? And so Kohelet then brings us wisdom. He wants to gather God's people around and say, is there wisdom for us as we look at just what's under the sun, just the things that we can, we can put our hands on, that we can tangibly uh, observe? Is there a way we can draw some wisdom from these things? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we consider chapter 4 together, Lord willing, the entire chapter. And I want to weave this whole chapter together under this understanding of the value or the need for companionship. And what we're going to find is that where the world, every time the world puts its hand on this thing called a relationship, it ends up creating more isolation and more division. And so every time the world tries to bring people together, tries to, try, tries to draw masses together, try, try to unite everybody under one umbrella, it ends up creating division 
isolation, even segregation. The only hope we have for relationships, for companionship, is when we turn to Christ, our maker and our creator. And so this morning, where we're going to see the lack of relationships as the world attempts to create them, we're going to find Christ sufficient. That when the world scatters humanity, when Christ is lifted up, he gathers humanity. He brings us together and he makes us the people that God's called us to be. And so this morning, I want us to consider our text as we work through it in chapter, in chapter 4 in five sections. Five sections. And so there's five points this morning to the message. Let's see if we can get through these together. If you would, notice with me. Point number one, oppression without comfort. Oppression without comfort. This is verses 1 through 3. Point number two, we're going to consider envy without contentment. Envy without contentment, verses 4 through 6. Point number three, toil without companionship. Toil without companionship. This is verses 7 and 8. Point number four, tragedy without community. Tragedy without community, verses 9 through 12. And point number five, Leadership without counsel. Leadership without counsel. Verses 13 through 16. Oppression without comfort. Envy without contentment. Toil without companionship. Tragedy without community. Leadership without counsel. Do you see here, each one of our points is going to reveal a lack that the world has when it seeks to bring unity relations, and companionship into our lives. And we're going to then turn at the end of our message, and we're going to notice together at one time, one single time, we're going to notice how Christ alone is our only hope for satisfying our souls and actually bringing relationships and companionship, community into our lives that our, that our souls so desperately need because we're made by a triune God. So let's look together at point number one, oppression without comfort. Look with me at verses one through three. Oppression without comfort is the first lack we see in our text. And this lack is really a lack of much-needed comforters in our world of oppression. Our world that's filled with cruelty desperately needs comforters. We saw that even this week in the Jacksonville newspaper or Jacksonville.com where it says that there's a, there, there's a crisis of need for um, mental therapists or counselors in our city because there's so few when there's so many that have needs. Notice with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead were already dead. Then I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Kohelet here wants us to join him again 
to, uh, to, uh, to join him in his observations, his discernment of the world around him. You see here he says, I saw all the oppressions. In other words, he's, he says, I'm observing, I'm, I'm, I'm evaluating, I'm taking a look at the world around me. And specifically those things that are in the world around me, those things that, as he says here in verse 1, that are under the sun. Recognize this to be true, he says. He even mentions and declares, he says, all the oppressors that are under the sun. He goes on and says, behold. In other words, I want you to acknowledge this. I want you to realize this. Look around. It doesn't take much observation to recognize. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. They're all around us, he says. He continues to confirm the influence and the authority of these oppressors. He says, and it seems that it's only the oppressors who have this authority and this influence. He says, on, on, the, on the side of the oppressors, there is power. There is power. And what are they using their power for? They're using it to oppress those who are under them. One of the most well-known quotes from a man by the name of Lord Acton, early 19th century. He says this, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. We see this very truth here. Evil men oppressing those whom they have power over. But notice with me what Kohelet is really trying to say here. He isn't simply just trying to make the case that the world is filled with corruption and oppression. No, he's trying to make the case. And this is really the horror, the horror of the point that he has before us here this morning. He mentions it twice to highlight just how severe this problem is. He says in verse 1 twice, And they, the oppressed, had, had no one to comfort them. And there was no one to comfort them, he says, secondly. As we remember, Kohelet himself is the king, isn't he? He's one who is reigning. He's the one who would have the ability and the resources to overcome this oppression if anyone will. And what we see here, oddly enough, is that he looks into all the oppression that's in his kingdom and that's around him. Even with all of his resources and his abilities, he's saying, even with all of that, the cancer that's in our society cannot be overcome by political power, by prestige, by throwing enough money at it. There's no way the oppressed will be relieved, no matter how much the world may attempt to make things right today. Much like Job's friends who were attempting to comfort Job, made his hardship even harder. Every attempt that the world tries to make to make things more comfortable for those who are oppressed in our world only makes them more oppressed, more overwhelmed with grief and cruelty. Our society and their attempts to comfort the oppressed has failed every single time. In fact, they would even declare their attempts are empty. We would say as Christians, this is vanity. Oppression in this world under the sun is a fact. It has always been with the societies under the sun. This is a grim truth that we cannot put a smile on, we cannot put a band-aid over. So much so that it can fester such deep bitterness and such profound hopelessness that when people begin realizing just how broken our society is and just how oppressed so many people are, notice what our text says. It continues to press in and talk about how acute it is, this lack of comfort. Verses 2 and 3 help us here. Verse 2 says that the people will become so hopeless in their fruitless attempts to bring comfort and not receive any relief that 
they will think to themselves, the dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. You see that there in our text? This conclusion is grievous. It should cause us to wail. Not because we read it in the text, but because each and every one of us know that it's apparent in our society that we live in. It is in the world that we are in today. And then verse 3 says, it tells us that even better than these, the one who's, who's, who, who's, who's living or the, the, one, the one who is living or the one who has already died is the person who has never been born. You see that in verse 3? He's not making here a statement about our pre-existence. That's not the point. No, instead, he's speaking of the nostalgia that we all feel. Many of us have known the day when we were younger, when the world was brighter, was filled with glory. Every day was an adventure. There was joy and hope. Many of us know what it's like to go into the Christmas season and want to live through that Christmas season through the eyes and through the life of our children. Why? Because the oppression that we know that's in the world, they don't know anything of yet. And it's a beautiful thing. I may be telling my age a little bit here, but I remember last Christmas, uh, as we do in our family, a ritual in our family, is that we watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's great. And I remember sitting there watching it and thinking, why, why isn't the world as wonderful as it was back when this was first made? And then I did research and found out that we were actually in the middle of the Vietnam War when that movie was made, that little show was made. In other words, the issue wasn't that the world was not filled with oppression. It's just that I didn't know about it when I was little. You see, this is exactly what the, this is what Kohelet's saying. He's saying, wouldn't it be great if we could just back up and not enter into this world filled with hardship and difficulty? It should seem odd here that the first few verses in chapter 4, which is the theme for companionship, quite clearly sets out that there are no real comforters. There's no companion that can help us. Why would verses 1 through 3 start with this? The rest of the chapter helps us understand the necessity of companionship and how important it is. Why is it that this, these few verses say, no companions on earth will ever help? However, our text speaks to some of us here this morning who are quite sure that if you had companionship, then your life, your conflicts, your sorrows, and all your struggles would either go away or at least be better. Though this chapter will clearly set forth the value of companionship as we continue to move forward, here we must confirm a very important truth that all of us must realize. Companionship and relationships, for being the gifts of God that they are, can never be ultimate. They can never be the things we live for or the things we look to as the basis for our hope and our joy. Some think of their lives can be filled with meaning if they simply had a spouse or a friend or simply they could, they could maybe reestablish that friendship with that loved one that they had. Things would be so much better then. Our passage here in verses 1, 2, 3 say, no matter what our friendships be, no matter what our relations may have, we're not going to finally find comfort, the satisfaction our soul longs for, if we're looking to these comforters here on earth. There is no person. There is no person here on earth. There's no program. There's no system that can bring the abiding comfort that our soul under the sun so desperately longs for. Point number two. 
Point number two, envy without contentment. We find and notice here the harm of our work that often comes to relationships. In other words, our work can bring harm to our relationships in a unique way. Look with me, if you will, at verses 4 through 6. Envy without contentment. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. The aim of this verse is to expose or reveal a common motivation for our work in this world. This is so common that here Kohelet says that it is all toil and all skill. Do you see that there in verse 4? It's motivated by what? It says here, envy of our neighbor. We may want to push back against that and say, ah, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But if I gave two of you who are strangers the opportunity to spend much time talking to one another, before you ended that conversation, one of you will be bragging to the other one about your accomplishments. It's the way it works. Now, if you think this is just what happens to people when they show up at trade shows or massive convention centers, they want to kind of show their product or show kind of how, how elite they are in the business world, give two moms just about 20 minutes together talking about different things. And I promise you, one of them will bring up their child's accomplishments and test the other mom to see if their child can measure up. You see, brothers and sisters, because of our sinful humanity, all of us want to compete. And sadly, much if not all of our work, our toil, our callings are motivated and stirred, not because we've been given those callings by God and we're to, by the grace of God, be strengthened to do them as God has gifted each one of us uniquely to do what God's called us to do. But instead, many of us, especially those who are living under the idea of just us under the sun without God as a reference, we do our work, we do our work as a competition to compare ourselves with others, to see whether we can measure up and how exactly those standards are. We all want to be better than our neighbor at everything. Every calling you've been given has been given by God. Why would we be comparing ourselves with one another? It is astounding for me to know that God has given me as a dad and a husband to unique individuals, and I'm gifted for that because God is wise. That is true for you as well. You wouldn't be a better dad if you were somebody else's, if you were somebody else. You're exactly the dad that God's called you to be, or the mom that God's called you to be. You have weaknesses and strengths. We're not to compare ourselves. We're to look to God together. But instead, we want to be motivated as if it's a contest, as if it's something to compete over. Here we find in our text, it says this. It says, it is vanity and a striving after win when we do that. But we'll continue to live in such a way in this, unbro- in this, in this, in this, in this broken world, this unspoken contest that's constantly between individuals. Some may wrongly conclude that it is work that is the problem. If work is stirring up all this stuff, then we need to stop working. You see, that's exactly what's happening here in verse 5. Notice carefully what our text says. It doesn't say that work causes rivalry. It says that our hearts cause rivalry, and we're using work as the tool to try to one-up ourselves with other people around us. Verse 5 correctly anticipates this wrong assumption. And it says there in verse 5, look, it says that idleness and laziness are described. It says here, the fool who folds his hands. Do you see that there in verse 5? 
causes great harm to him, though. When idleness and laziness abides with a person, it is not favored by God. It says the fool, when he's idle and lazy, eats his own flesh. Do you see that? In other words, to be idle and lazy is self-destructive. It is a striving in such a way as to destroy one's own efforts. So we see here that work is not the problem. Verse 6 continues by turning from envy and shows us that we're instead of envy supposed to be resting in contentment. We're supposed to rest in what we have. It is an amazing truth for us to believe and live out, and it is this, that God has given us everything that we have. And here's the harder part of that truth. The things that we do not have, God has also given to us. The things we do not have were not given to us by God. And so we can rest content knowing that he has given us what he's given us and he's withheld what he's withheld from us and we can live in his arms content. It's exactly what it's saying here. It is better to have just a, a little that you need. It says here, a handful. And your life be filled with quietness if you just have what you need, that one handful, than for your life to be ambitious and pursuing everything that's around you in the world, these two handfuls, and constantly be toiling and striving after the emptiness of the world. One has said before, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Thus envy will always set people over against one another. I hope you can see how envy threatens and eventually will destroy companionship. Envy, driven work, and toil will never water or nourish the companionship that so many of us desperately need. And this need for companionship is where our third point then leads us. Look with me at point number three, verses seven through eight, toil without companionship. The third lack that is mentioned here, the third lack that the world has as it deals with relations and companionship is this lack of companionship here. Our society encourages, even idolizes, not companionship, but instead independence, self-actualization, a me-centered, autonomous life is what the world promotes. And brothers and sisters, it is killing us. It is killing us. But notice this problem of lack, of seeing our need for companionship here in these two verses, verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 say, And again I saw vanity, Under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Many of you remember, or you will will quickly latch on to, the book when I say the word Ebenezer Scrooge. Do you remember the overworked nephew? His name is Fred. In Dickens' classic book, The Christmas Carol, Fred describes Ebenezer when they're in the shop one day. And this is what his overworked nephew, this is how he describes Ebenezer Scrooge. His wealth is of no use to him. He, and this is Fred speaking in his dialect, so I'm, I'm not just you know, I'm reading the actual words from the book. His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Because he suffers 
by his own whims, himself and himself always. This kind of life is indeed vanity, but it's a life too many of us know all too well. This working from one week to the next for a paycheck, this idea of vigorously working after, going after each and everything, no end to all of our toil, as the verse says. And yet that person is constantly looking for more riches, more wealth, more pleasures, more ability to enjoy life. And it's all for himself. Working for his own pleasure. Never once pausing for a moment and saying, wait a minute, should I be living for somebody or someone other than myself? Week in and week out, month in and month out, years go by, and he never pauses to ask the question or to seriously answer this question, for whom am I doing all this for? He never considers that what he is called to is been calling by God, that's given to each and every one of us, that we might love and serve our neighbors. Did you know God has called each and every one of us to love and serve those who are around us? And brothers and sisters, I want to make the case from Scripture that we're to love and serve one another, our neighbors well, but we are to especially love and serve our congregation, each other as a family here in this church. But if we abandon our callings and live like Ebenezer Scrooge, Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge, himself always will be our theme just as it was his, then we will grow to be absolutely convinced of what our passage says here at the end of verse 8. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Solomon wisely wrote later in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 16, he says this, The wage of the righteous lead to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. If we diligently toil and strive for ourselves and for our own gain, we will find that even what we gain, our riches and more of the world's pleasures, they will not satisfy us. They never will. They'll only leave us more and more empty. Do you see how our work, our toil, our callings, if they're, not, if they're only considered for those things that are under the sun, what we can get out of them here and now, as earthly perspective that we have, they will only lead us to more and more despair. Our earthly pleasures will never lift us out of our own self-centered lives. Point number four. Point number four. Tragedy without community. Tragedy without community. Verses 9 through 12. The fourth lack we consider this morning is in verses 9 through 12. If verses 7 and 8 expose the need for our companionship, verses 9 through 12 illustrate our need for community. Do you see the difference? Verses 7 and 8 tell us we need companionship. We need people that are around us, individuals that we know and love and serve and care for. Verses 9 through 12 tell us we not only need individuals, but we need a community around us. Listen to these verses, many of them very familiar to us, some of you, the book, the book of Ecclesiastes is only known for these verses. So look with me at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
in our rebellion, we all seek and greatly prize independence, self-sufficiency. No, no, don't worry. I can do it for myself. I can take care of this. It's a value and a virtue that we assume for ourselves to be autonomous and to be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to take care of things means that we're being responsible. It means that we're doing what is right and good. The secular world measures progress and success by independence. I can do this myself. Christ in the church, however, calls us to measure our spiritual maturity not by how much we individually know or how much we personally have experienced or how much we have individually felt about God or Jesus. Spiritual progress, spiritual maturity, according to the scriptures, instead is is measured by how we have grown to be more and more, listen to this word, interdependent. Interdependent. Acknowledging, confessing that the values of this world are independence, are self-sufficiency, are, are autonomy. I can do these things by myself. I don't need anybody else. I don't need to lean in anybody else's lives. That's the culture speaking, and it is a lie. It needs to be not only acknowledged, but repented of. We need to grow to become more and more humble, more and more interdependent, as the Scriptures calls us to. We're to be living our lives with one another, Notice our text as it's set forth here. This proverb is being brought forward, and then it's being illustrated or pictured for us in the next three verses. So in verse 9, the proverb is brought forward. It says, two are better than one. Do you see that proverb? Very clearly stated. Two are better than one. Well, why is two better, better than one? It goes on and explains it for us. It says, because they have a good reward for their toil. In other words, it's a good wage, a good reward. It's better to live with those that are around you instead of as isolated individuals. And then it goes on. It says, well, let us explain this even further. Let's picture this through some illustrations. Illustration 1 is in verse 10. Illustration 2 is in verse 11. Illustration 3 is in verse 12. Look with me, if you will. Each one of these are illustrated. First illustration of the value of community. Verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. This tragedy of a fall should not be narrowly understood as simply someone falling into a ditch or falling in their home. But instead, we need to understand that as the church has understood it throughout the history of the church, and that is, this fall is not merely a physical fall, though it can be. It's also talking about those who spiritually fall or stumble. We recognize that when one falls, we need others to help lift us up. But if we're all by ourselves and we fall spiritually, we're abandoned. We have no ability to be lifted up and encouraged in Christ. Many of you recognize this phrase that's on the back of your worship journal. It says this, We will walk together in brotherly love, as becomes the members of Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other faithfully. Are you doing that? This isn't something we just read because we like hearing ourselves say that. This is not some sentimental idea. This is what God has called us to do. Is to actually love each other, being each other's lives, know how each other is doing, know the heart aches in each other's hearts, and to be able to care for each other. It goes on, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as, a, as occasion may require. That means you've got to be in each other's lives. Now, the struggle is this. Many of us fail at this 
not because we are just determined not to love one another. Many of us fail at this because we're determined to be too busy doing everything else. All kinds of other things that are not bad things in and of themselves. They're just keeping you so busy that you cannot love the people that God's called you to love well. Second illustration is here in verse 11. The illustration of the importance of community says in verse 11, Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, I don't know how this illustration can land on Floridians. Um, I grew up in North Carolina, and there were cold nights in North Carolina. And when we were little guys, I had a little brother, when we were little and it got really cold on certain nights in North Carolina, mom would put both of us in one bed. Why? Because we would stay warm if we were in one bed. She'd throw a couple of extra blankets on it. If it got really cold, we had the prize of being able to get in bed with mom and dad, right, when we were little. That was a great thing. What were they doing? They were keeping us warm. It's exactly the, 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 the principle that's being here. And the exact same spirit, uh, principle happens as well in way of spiritual fervency. You try to live your life spiritually away from all the other believers that God has called into your life. You will flicker and flame out. You will not continue to be warm and, and, and vibrant in your spiritual faith. You will not continue to be stoked in there are embers. Brothers and sisters, our hearts and our souls so often smolder. We need one another. We need one another to keep each other warm in Christ, to point each other to Christ, to, to encourage each other when we're faltering and, and being discouraged. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together. This is talking about us gathering on Lord's Day. We're not to neglect this because we need to be stirring each other up to love and good works. It says, Not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but then it continues and it says, but encouraging one another and all the more. Listen to what it says. As the day draws near. As the day is drawing near. All the more as we look to the day when all of us are going to face our Savior. We're going to stand before God one day. And we're going to be given, we have to give an account for our lives. This is why we need each other. So that we can better evaluate our own hearts, better be stirred, so that we can be warm and fervent for our Lord. The third illustration is mentioned is there in verse 12. Look with me. We see here how important community is in verse 12. It says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Many of you have been in a public place and maybe had your children and they needed to go and do something and, and you sent two of them together or maybe a couple of them to go with the, each other to go and do something in a public place together. Maybe at a, at a fairground or a ball game or, or doing something. And right before they start walking off, what do you say to them that they're going to be ignoring? It's like they automatically, their ears turn off as soon as they turn their backs to you. But right as they leave, you say this, stay together. Why do we do that? It's hardwired in us. We know this principle here in verse 12. A man might prevail against one person if he's alone, but two will withstand him. Why is that true? Because a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let me bring some clarity to this last, this last verse that is used often in all kinds of contexts. Um, we're notorious as the church to pull a verse out of context and use it for all kinds of fantastic things. The threefold cord is not quickly broken um, can easily be misunderstood. This proverb helps us understand that the point is not narrowly to be understood, that everyone needs somebody. As if couples are necessary or ultimate. There are those who honestly believe that until they get married, they will not really be used by God. 
and that God can never use them until they do have a spouse. That is untrue, and that cannot be backed up anywhere in Scripture. Though marriage and having a spouse is a wonderful gift of the Lord, it was never intended to be ultimate. We also need to understand as well that this threefold cord cannot be quickly broken. Um, can't be interpreted or understood as I've heard it before where it says um, everybody, uh, everybody needs two people. That's a good thing. But if you have three friends, that's even better. Um, I'm not sure where they're going with that um, and, and how, that's kind of, how that works out. Usually what they'll go on and say is that what you need is you need, you need, it needs to be you and two other people. You need a person that's younger than you, that you can be encouraging in the faith. You need a person that's older than you so that you can be mentored in the faith. And they use that three thing. I, I don't know where they get that from. It just kind of came out of nowhere. So I don't know why any of that's used. But, but don't confuse the point. The point here is very simple, and it is this. The Lord has designed us and made us for community. It's good that we live not by ourselves in isolation, but in community of believers. Now, that's hard because um, I'm not very lovely. Um, many of you aren't very lovely. And when we start living together, we're going to irritate the stew out of each other and rub each other in all kinds of ways. That's good for us and it's for our sanctification. And that's exactly what God's called us to do because at the end of the day, our understanding of what we're to be when we stand before God isn't what God has for us. God wants us. He says he's going to make us holy and blameless before him. Now, I can testify that my wife has no idea what that looks like in me. Right? And you have no idea what that looks like in you. But I promise you this, the Lord has given you this church, those of you who are covenant members of this church, for the purpose of helping you be more and more like Christ. And that isn't something that you can create in your own heart and mind. It's something that God's creating in you and for you. Point number five I want to just notice, lastly, leadership without counsel. Leadership without counsel. This is the fifth lack that the world seeks to pursue in way of community and way of companionship, and yet the world falls flat on its face. And it is this. They do not value companionship. In fact, they, sh- they choose to shun even counsel of those who are around us. Look with me. This text probably is, is the one that's the least straightforward of any of the texts in chapter 4. So let me read it, and then we'll try to aim at the, the, the main point here. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. He had been born poor. I saw... All the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who, came late, who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Consider the, the main and plain point this morning. The poor youth became king because he was wise and willing to take advice. The old king lost his reign because he was foolish and refused to allow counselors to give him input and advice. Now, this is not how it's supposed to be. Even though our world today thinks that youth and being young is supposed to be valued over being older, every other culture with any kind of sanity knows that it is the older, the elderly that are to be valued because of their wisdom and their experience, that they can invest in the younger. But our upside-down society thinks otherwise. This term for youth actually could be an older teenager, like 17, 
but it can mean one who is actually in their early 40s as well. So youth isn't exactly what we would have in mind here. Now, it's flipped upside down. The older king, who was not wise, actually lost his reign. The poor and youthful man who listened to advice was the one who became king. The young, even today, who fix their hearts on the promises of God, are always going to be more wise than those who seek the world and the things in it. So mind those things that are in God's word. Go after those things that are in God's word. No matter what age you may be, humble yourself before God's word and go after him. Pursue the things that are there and tremble to think about disobeying them. Psalm 119.100 says, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. This is amazing how this king went from being in prison to being on the throne, this young man. Wisdom and willingness to take advice, counsel, served him well. It proved to allow him to excel and to be one who was set before all these people. And yet it says at the end of this verse, it says that the crowds ended up turning on him. They ended up turning around because the crowd's hearts are always fickle. And they judged him and deemed him unworthy to be king at the end of his reign. So the old foolish king desires to be isolated and ignore advice. And so he lost his reign. The young and poor king was elevated because of his wisdom as he gathers advisors and allow them to counsel him. And yet the warning here, the warning here is this. Advisors and crowds are two different things. Did you hear that? The interests of the crowds always turn quickly. The warning again is stated this way. Here's the point. Camaraderie and popularity are not the same thing, even though they can easily be mistaken for one another. Though there is a success with a multitude of advisors, that is a very different thing than trying to seek popularity from the masses. We are not called as God's people to try to make everybody happy. Any and everyone in this room who's tried to do that realizes that you will fail at that. You're to make the Lord happy. Turn your attention to him and be faithful to the callings he's given to you. Now let me close this morning by looking at our text and considering the fact that Christ can satisfy every single lack that the world has as they seek to help us in our relationships. The world tries to bring about unity and conformity. They try to bring us together and gather us around all kinds of things. And yet we're more divisive. We're shooting each other more than we ever have in this country. I hope this morning that as we've moved through this text, your soul has groaned. That you have seen the deficiency and the dissatisfaction that the world has promised but can never deliver. It's constantly telling us that it will bring us together and it will bring hope. And it will treasure these things that are good and right. But under the sun, they only can divide and isolate. This is how things naturally fall out. They will naturally go toward fighting and discord and not unity and peace. This is the secular life. This is the life under the sun where we do not acknowledge that we have a God who's in heaven, that we're to be thankful to, and that we're to honor as our maker. In light of what we've seen this morning from our text, how in the world can we constantly... How can we constantly live in this world with our souls 
deeply grieved over the brokenness in it. My prayer is that we this morning turn our eyes to fix them upon Christ who is sufficient, our treasure, our good, and our joy. This is not some trite message where a preacher is saying, the world and all that's in it is broken, so all you need to do is trust Jesus. I want you to understand that the world is filled with lies. Satan has one tool. He's got one tool in his toolbox, and he's going to use it, and that is to lie and deceive. He's going to deceive us and teach us that we cannot trust those that are around us. The world, if we keep looking at it, we will continue to be disappointed. I call upon each and every one of you to fix your hope, your joy, not on this world that is so desperately lacking, but instead upon Christ. When the world says they cannot provide comforters, we can look to Jesus Christ who says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arms rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Listen, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The Lord is the one who gathered his people in the Old Testament. The Lord is the one who brought unity. Every time they tried to fix their lives, they became scattered and discouraged. That's the testimony of so many here this morning. But brothers and sisters, I say to you, we do have a comforter. This comforter is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. This is the one that we're promised in Scripture, that Jesus Christ will be the one that comforts us. Keep looking to the world to bring comfort, and you'll never find it. The world is without comfort. Also, the world is without contentment. When we work and live our lives, we continue with envy to try to one-up one another. We try to make our lives a contest to put others down, to compete with others. Our Lord Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our hearts, who can give us a calling where we can be content with what God has given to us and not frantically wandering around trying to compete and live our lives at a breakneck speed so that we can be better than the person that's next to us. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. Did you hear that? We brought nothing into this world. Listen to the last part of this verse. And we cannot take anything out of this world. So what are we living for? Why are we trying to compete? The Lord Jesus can bring us contentment. The Lord Jesus can bring us comfort. The Lord Jesus, point number three, can bring us companionship. When the world is constantly driving you to strive for more stuff so that you can be happy. And the more you have stuff, the less you're able to love those around you. There are so many men, specifically, who live their lives for their paycheck. Their wives and their children become secondary. They begin going after the boat or the golf or the, or, or, or the new house or the this or the that. And they abandon the relationships that God has given them and the callings that God's given to them. This is all over our world, and yet here we seek companionship, a soul that longs for Christ. Christ, brothers and sisters, Christ alone will be our dearest and most precious companion. It says in John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone shall lay down his life 
for his friends. And then Jesus says this, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. The Lord Jesus is our brother and our friend. The world knows nothing of community. It is without community, point number four. When tragedy happens and the world leaves us to fend for ourselves again alone, because it will and it has done that before, we'll fall or we'll stumble or we'll be left alone, and we turn to the world to find comfort and hope and community, and it's not there to help us. You're called, you're called to seek community through faith in Christ as you've been brought into the very church. We were made by a triune God who's in perfect communion with one himself. And he has brought us into his own, into himself, and he has brought us into a body of believers. The Lord Jesus has given us a community through faith in Jesus Christ. We are brought into faith. Now listen to this. Which is more biblical? Which is more biblical? Now I know both have their, their place in Scripture. But which is the more biblical and clear truth in Scripture? That I have a personal relationship with Jesus or that I've been brought into a body of believers to live and serve them? It is the second one. But we think that the main thing Jesus did when he saved us is brought me into this personal relationship with me and Jesus and we, I can just close my eyes and feel just so kind of warm feelings about Jesus. That means nothing. That isn't based on anything in God's word. God has brought us to a body of believers, a community of what's called visible saints. He's called us into the church. And by giving us this congregation, he has not left us to just imagine what it means to be in his presence or to be drawn by the Spirit of God. But instead, he's given us one another that we can love and serve one another specifically so that we can not only know what it means to serve Jesus, but know what it means to be loved on by Jesus. Do you understand that if you are not loving this congregation that God's called you in, then you are not loving Jesus. And if you are not being loved by this congregation, then you're not being loved by Jesus. This is how God has called us to put hands and feet on our faith. It's not just a personal, individual, autonomous relationship that we have with Jesus. It is a calling to serve and love one another. These persons that the Lord has united us with by His Holy Spirit to be interdependent with is how we love Christ and how Christ loves us. Our confession says it this way, the members of, this, of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto the call of Christ. And listen, it says, and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ to do what? Giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another. That's how you give yourself to the Lord. You give yourself to one another. By the will of God and professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So are you going to obey Jesus? Then live your life for the church. It's a glorious example we had this morning as we went to baptism. And we saw Taylor, a young lady who says, I'm giving my life to Jesus. You know what she was saying? I'm going to serve and love this congregation. And we as a congregation... We said, as we serve and love Jesus, we want to serve and love Taylor because she's now one of ours. And we have a responsibility to love her well. And she has been covenanted before God 
to love us well. Finally, without counsel, the world, the world is foolish, and it will never have the counsel that it claims to have. When the crowds that you have desperately tried to please all your life are quickly turned away from you as the winds turn, and you're left empty and poor, turn to Christ, who is your wonderful counselor and your helper. Jesus says he's not only going to comfort us, but he will also draw us and give us wisdom and help. In John 14, Jesus is about to leave his disciples, but he gives them this word to encourage them. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, some translations say the counselor, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, many of us have read that verse. Again, we've read that verse thinking, you know what? That's a wonderful verse, wonderful verse that Jesus is speaking to me individually. Jesus is speaking to me. He's going to give me these things. I can sit in my closet and read my Bible and pray, and God's going to give me these things. That's not true. That's not true. He's giving the church these things. He's giving, in this particular passage, the apostles these things so that we can read his word. And know what he has to say to us. And we as a church can encourage each other in that way. At the beginning of John 14, it says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And what is the Lord wanting to do? Is he wanting to give us a room so that we can go and hide out in our house in heaven all by ourselves? No, he says, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. The Lord says, our great desire for community, for companionship, for love, it's all based in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our aim and our joy. And until that day when we meet him in the heavens, we have a responsibility to love each other by the power of the Spirit and care for one another as God's called us to. That we may be able to declare to the world all the areas where they lack, our Savior is sufficient. May he bless us in that way. Let us pray.